Greg, I finally get to say this word and use it correctly. It is the penultimate episode of Breaking Gay Fable with Bowder and Barry, the weekly edition. It's episode 299. So, welcome all you motherfuckers. I am only going to be able to say that a couple more times, Barry. Barry Rose, how are you doing, my man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. 299, Jeff. We did... 299 episodes and we never took off a week. I, I, I put that on my, my fucking gravestone. That is unbelievable that we were able to do that. But the second to last episode and seven days, it'll be the last episode. And I I got mixed emotions there. I'm a little, little choked up. You know, this has been a, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this in great detail. I have a we'll get weepy next, next week. week. We'll get weepy, but yeah, it, this is a I have mixed emotions. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So on this particular episode, our match of the week takes us to June thirtieth, nineteen eighty five, in the Myriad in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, as the Midnight Express, Jimmy, Bobby, and Dennis take on the Rock and Roll Ricky and Robert uh, in a uh, an afternoon show, and I will go into some detail as to uh, what transpired as far as the afternoon show and why it was an afternoon show. That's kind of interesting. We're going to talk a little AEW, a stellar, stellar pay-per-view last night that I watched. Barry did not get a chance to watch it. We'll be talking some AEW stuff. And because we're nothing if not what, Barry? We're givers. We're givers. We're absolutely fucking givers. And because we're givers, we are going to be offering some WWE commentary. Wow. See how I hit that note even with my shitty voice? Uh, courtesy of our old friend Stephen Javorski, uh, cranking one out as he usually does. I will be offering up, this is for you, Andrew Betts, a little two live crew discussion and uh, some commentary on the judge that did the uh, two live crew, Barry. Uh, you loved that commentary, didn't you, Barry? That story that I told, uh, get ready for that one. And uh, besides all that, you've waited with bated breath. I teased it. Barry Rose, our special guest this week. That has never before done a podcast anywhere. Barry, why don't you tell the folks who our special guest is this week in part one of the interview? Because, quite frankly, we only expected about a half hour, and this person gave us an hour and a half. Barry Rose, why don't you introduce her to the audience? She gave us an hour and a half, and we kind of had to stop at that point. And I haven't. Uh, Mainly it was you. It was. Sure, you had some schedule problem. Yeah, we could have gone, I think, for another hour and a half for a solid at least three yeah. hours. But it is the first lady of championship wrestling from Florida, our old friend Dottie Curtis. Did you just call us. her old? Okay, we're gonna have to strike that because I have to get <laughs> my ass kicked. Friend. I was gonna say uh, what, it is our friend that we have known for many years, uh, the first lady of CWF, Dottie Curtis. Yes, and this is someone that I can tell the listeners that you. And I both have wanted to go have on this show yep. for a long time. She is uh, absolutely spot on in her memory. She was so gracious, such a fine lady to join us and talk about all things CWF. Some great stories I think you're really going to enjoy. And uh, she she just couldn't have been nicer. And we were so lucky to have her agree to join us. Never before has done a podcast appearance. This was fresh off her appearance of course, on Dark Side of the Ring recently uh, discussing uh, the deaths of Eddie and Mike Graham uh, and the somewhat troubled history. I think that's a very kind way of putting it uh, with the Graham family. And uh, I think it's uh, very compelling. And uh, I tell you what, on that note, hey, Lou, why don't you take us uh, to the first part of our interview with Dottie Curtis? Hey, Barry, we are super fortunate to have a guest that 
I think you advised me uh, before we started recording, has never done a podcast appearance before. So really, we have sort of a celebrity in our midst. Barry, why don't you go ahead and introduce to our listeners who our guest is today? Absolutely. This is uh, someone who is a wealth of knowledge about the old CWF territory, kind of considered the grand dame of CWF in uh, somebody that I have hold the utmost respect for. It is Ms. Dottie Curtis joining us today, Jeff. Dottie, welcome to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Thank you. I, I'm getting to feel very old already when he said I was like the, the grand dame. Uh, somebody <laughs> called me, somebody called me a historian here in Jacksonville <laughs> in my business. <laughs> but well, I, I'm glad because I thought Barry was going to call you grand something else and I was going to be, oh, we're going to get hung up on here. So <laughs> but we are extremely fortunate to have you join us fresh off your appearance, uh, on dark side of the ring. So before we get into that episode and some questions that we might have uh, regarding that particular issue with Eddie and Mike Graham, you, of course, are the widow of uh, the late Don Curtis. So I always like to start at the beginning. Dottie, how and when did you first meet Don and begin this journey into the world of pro wrestling? You're going to get my age one way or another, aren't you? <laughs> it was Barry. Barry wanted me to ask. Oh, innocent. I'm innocent. <laughs> I uh, started back in the 50s in New York, and uh, then from New York, after his great run in New York with Mark Lewin, uh, we came down to Florida. We went down to Tampa, and that began, began the journey through uh, the southeast, the west, <laughs> the uh, middle states, every place. So All points uh, in between, huh? All points in between, yes. Gotcha. When you first wound up in Florida, did you live in the Tampa area? Yes, we did. In fact, uh, when I first came down, here we go again. My age is coming into this. <laughs> I came down with my our first daughter uh, on a non-sked airline, a prop, prop airline, uh, to Miami. Don was wrestling down in Miami. And uh, he brought me, I had never been down to the South before, and so he brought me from Miami up to Tampa, and he said, oh, I, I, you know, I'm taking you up there. When I got up to Tampa, I, ju- I mean, I just couldn't believe the difference, the climate, the, 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 everything was so different from the cities, the concrete jungle of New York. And so we went, uh, we first rented a, a house and uh over on the the bay on golf, on the golf actually and then we he we went into a house that one of the wrestlers was in and I was in the middle of a orange grove and a lake and I thought I was in paradise so let me just ask you uh you know you mentioned that Don uh had taken you all over uh, in his different territories that he worked in so when you came down to Florida, how did you find Don's schedule as compared to other places that he worked? Was it, uh, I guess, uh, a more taxing schedule for him, like, you know, seven days a week, that kind of thing, whereas maybe other territories weren't quite that busy? Or was it pretty much the same everywhere he went? It was it was pretty much the same. The most gruesome territory was the Amarillo te- territory because uh, 
he would travel somewhere around 2100 miles a week wow. and they would they would have to they would have to double up in the cars and drive at night i used uh, pat pat godoy and i he used to stand in my kitchen we laughed about this and we would make up food for them for the road uh, so they would have a cooler full of food because they couldn't even stop to get from one territory uh, from one town to excuse me to another still get choked up on that one <clears throat> but they they had to travel at nighttime and uh, one of my funny stories was when he was traveling they would you know stay at a, a motel someplace and he kept bringing home these horrible white towels with orange stripes down the middle of them. And, of course, I kept saying, what am I supposed to do with these things? And so I'd wash them. And one day I just gave him about 12 or 14 towels back. And I said, would you take this back to the lady at the hotel? And she said she'd never had anybody bring a towel back before, but she was very happy. <laughs> So it, back in those days too, and you you know you you talked a little bit about what it was like getting out of New York and then arriving in Florida, but showing up in Tampa during that area, and obviously the state of Florida has seen such growth in the last you know couple of decades, uh, but at the same time too, what was it like like being in Tampa? Coming out of New York, besides the weather aspect, culturally coming from New York to Florida, what was that like? Well, you hear my accent. I don't think you can ever lose your New York accent. But when we first came uh, down to Tampa and we moved out to the house on the lake, we were in a little town called Citrus Park, which is up uh, on a two-lane street going from Tampa, and you can go through it and up to Tarpon Springs and that. I mean, really rural. We passed a dairy. We passed people selling eggs. They had the chicken farms. <clears throat> and when we went into the house, I was very, very conscious of my New York accent because it took me a while to understand a couple of things that people were saying. So the first day with, that we moved into the house on the lake, I went down to this little country store that I saw as we passed it on our way to the the house. I went in and I wanted to get some detergent for clothes because at the, this time we had two children. And um, so um, and I take it back. We had one child. <laughs> the other one, it seems like she's been with me all for that time too, but she wasn't. Uh, she was born in Tampa, but I walked into this little store and this lovely man behind the counter, gray haired man, he said, can, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like some all. And he said, vegetable or mineral? And I said, <laughs> I'd like some ALL detergent. <laughs> so I knew I was in trouble there, but... The pace was wonderful for me. Uh, the people were lovely. I think if I had to move any place to get accustomed to Southern life, that was the place to be. You know, places called Fox's Corner, <laughs> Citrus Park. I mean, it was it was it was a, 
an adjustment in, in good ways. I loved it, and I hated leaving it. And had we known then what we knew once we came up here, probably never would have left it. But Jacksonville has been good for us. Uh, our two daughters married boys up here, and we've made our roots up here. We Once we got here, we really just never left. So was there a little bit, uh, other than, you know, you enjoying uh, all the benefits of living in the state of Florida, as far as Don goes, though, uh, you mentioned the travel and in the Amarillo territory and such. Uh, when it came to the traveling in the state of Florida and all wrestling at that time, was there a little bit of uh, the Wild Wild West uh, aspect to it also? Uh, not as well. I shouldn't say not as much. Uh, I remember when uh, we were down in Tampa. the The big trip was to Jacksonville, Florida, every week on Thursdays, and that that's about um, a three hour, three and a half hour trip each way. And so that was that was one of the toughest. The other other places uh, I went with Don at times when I could. Uh, having, you know, my children down there and that, it was, uh, you know, tough for me to go at times. But we luckily uh, lived right next door to a elderly couple, and they had grandchildren galore, and they just adopted my two girls, and they would keep them whenever I needed to have them do it. And so I was fortunate to be able to go around with Don at to places where he we were out in the country, so it was hard to him for him to ride with other people. And uh, so I would go to Lakeland and, and Sarasota and stuff like that. So uh, it, we, you know, we really uh, enjoyed that traveling at that time. I now hate it. I, I, I have panics when I have to go to Orlando. Which I know I've been trying to get you to Tampa to come to one of our fan fests for a I while. I was going to say. Yeah, so I, I know that, uh, I know that travel is not what it used to be, which I don't think it is for any of us though, right, Jeff? Absolutely. Yeah, so the question I have too, look, Jacksonville, uh, your last name in the city of Jacksonville really are synonymous with each other. And there were a couple of promoters prior to your husband taking over. Uh, I think George Romanoff might have been the first that promoter. Was a long, yeah, that was a long time before. Yeah, that. he was, uh, he passed away in a car accident and then. Terrible. Uh, yeah, and then, and that was, I forget exactly, in the, I, at some point in the 50s, I want to say early 50s, and then Jimmy Murdoch to, took over. Jimmy had, uh, and ran the city for professional wrestling for, for many years, and then Don in the 1960s took over. What was that like where all of a sudden, uh, you know, your husband's out on the road, he's doing, he's, he's wrestling, he's traveling. Now he literally has become the promoter in what's arguably the largest building in the, in the entire state for professional wrestling. Well, he, he not only, uh, was doing the promoting here, he was very involved. Eddie put him up here. Uh, let me go back to Jimmy. Jimmy Murdoch was, a boxing promoter. Uh, he didn't know anything about wrestling. The only thing Jimmy Murdoch did for the wrestling was to run around and put posters in the barbershop windows. Uh, and his 
posters had, you know, uh, the gate like 156,000. He kept yes. adding every week and everything to it. And uh, that was all he really did here. Eddie um, controlled J- uh, Jacksonville. And even when Don was here, Don's, uh, Don's role for Eddie was to get involved, get involved with the community, get involved with the amateur wrestlers, get involved with the politicians, which Don did, and and more so than what Eddie ever imagined he would do. But Eddie was a climber. He, He wanted to be involved with politics, and he knew that Don could do it for him. And so um, Don never had any uh, ownership in the business. A lot of people didn't know that. <clears throat> but he, uh, Eddie was Eddie and Cowboy Luttrell were the promoters, and then finally just Eddie. And so all Don did was get a paycheck. And uh, so he had no control over who was here or what happened? The only control he had was to keep the boys in order if they did anything crazy when they were here. And most of them feared him, so it wasn't hard. <laughs> gotcha. But Don Don would have also had Eddie's ear, though, wouldn't he have? Oh, well, he had, unfortunately, uh, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. Eddie was a genius, I mean, with the business. I don't think there's anybody else in the business who had the the moxie there goes my new york again but <laughs> the wherewithal he he just you know he didn't need opinions from other people on a lot of things and he just uh, you know he he would ask don i guess opinions on on things but not anything about who to bring in or what to do except for Don scouting a couple of people, one of them, a very dear friend, uh, uh, too, is Bob Roop. Don saw him because Don, by this time, uh, was involved with the amateurs and with the, he was on the Olympic Committee. He was destined to, he was supposed to go to the Munich Olympics uh, as the representative for the wrestling team when they were there, and because of some conflicts he could not go thank god because that was when the the terrorist attacked the village and killed the jewish uh, team a lot of the team and that i i always say god if don was there you'd have seen him fly with people flying out the windows or he'd have been killed but <clears throat> anyway uh but don's because of don's involvement with the amateurs and that he saw the potential of bob roop and um, we go from there. You know, I, I talked uh, at the very beginning of the interview about how we like to start at the beginning. And, you know, now discussing uh, Don uh, and uh, finding Bob Roop and uh, seeing the the potential in Bob Roop. You know, we did not even mention, uh, and I apologize for that, but Don, of course, had a, a legendary amateur career. Yes, he did have a legendary career. He is in the Hall of Fame in in the university at Buffalo. Uh he had he was uh, team captain two years there. 
Uh, he never, I don't think he was ever pinned. I'd have to go back and look at my records. He only lost a couple of them by by points, but he was revered up there. And um, yeah, he had a, he, in fact, they used to sell out the auditorium for amateur wrestling when Don was there as the heavyweight. Wow. Gotcha. So we're going too. back to the 50s. Late early fifties. Gotcha. Much, and it sounds like much like Eddie was always. I, I don't know if the word is fascinated or just truly impressed by those that had true amateur credentials. Uh, obviously, Don coming from that world, and then guys like Roop. And but it does seem like a, out of all the territories, Florida was a wrestling territory. Certainly, there were. Bloodbaths, there was, you know, a lot of chain matches, etc. But at the same time, and I always found that interesting, the main event might be a Dusty Rhodes bull rope match, but then you're going to have like a Jack Briscoe versus Billy Robinson style catches catch can wrestling, which I always thought was, yeah, that there was a genius to that, right? Well, I I think so. That's why I say Eddie was genius. He put credibility into this territory, and yes, there were there were some fabulous uh, amateur wrestlers involved in it. Uh, one of Don's college ma- uh, college roommates and a buddy on the team with him was Bob Leipler, who wrestled as Duke Hoffman. And he was an unbelievable powerhouse in both amateur and in professional. So I guess one of the things that we should uh, probably get to was your recent appearance on uh, the Dark Side of the Ring episode uh, on the Vice Network and talking about Mike and Eddie uh, and their you know, and along with Nicole Gossett uh, talking about oh. her grandfather and, you know, and we, we said how incredibly brave it was of Nicole to uh, go out there and, and talk. And, you know, God bless oh. her just to have a smile on her face still. Uh, I must don't have know been, how she did it. Yeah, it must have been incredibly hard and very brave. But you talked about Eddie. And uh, as Barry and I mentioned in our last episode, uh, you know, we have, much like you just did, praised Eddie uh, infinitum for his genius as a booker, as a promoter, as a guy who could really find talent and bring out that talent in them. But not, not to, uh, you know, quote the, uh, the episode, but there was a dark side to Eddie also. Well, unfortunately, uh, it was a hereditary thing. Uh, he had, he was an alcoholic and I guess he had depression although just like mike the two of them always had a smile on their face and you always thought eddie was in control of everything until the alcohol got to him and then you would definitely see his dark side and like i said in the interview the one thing that i had talked about i first cleared it with nicole i would never say anything to anyone uh if I hadn't cleared it with Nicole first and she said, no, go ahead, you know, and, uh, and say it. But, uh, I talked about the, uh, episode where he went around and, uh, 
threw bottles out of the car, and then one night he couldn't get any alcohol on his way home, so he went out and groveled in the field. This was at the airport. It was the perimeter road to the airport in Tampa, and he drove around that. That was a shortcut to get from the airport, from Tampa Air Center. You go the perimeter road, and he'd come out on the, the street going down to West Shore Boulevard to his house, and he told on this. Uh, I think he was grasping for help, and he didn't know how to do it. But he told Don that was the low point for him uh, when he realized that his demons had got to him. He told Don about going out there and digging around in the dirt. In fact, he really couldn't believe he'd done it himself, I don't think. Uh, and it made him feel like he had, he just wasn't in control, and that's the one thing Eddie always enjoyed was that you know he had he had a grip on his life at one point he went from rags to riches and you know made a a, a name for himself a home for himself with the territory in uh, in Tampa and then he's down on his hands and knees drinking old stuff out of a bottle. God knows what had climbed into the bottle of bugs or that, but he didn't care because by that time, the alcohol had taken over his, his life, and it made him very, very depressed. And all the signs were there. At the end, all the signs were there. We were we were naturally up here by that time, but people would talk and say, my God, he just sits upstairs and stares out the window, and he comes in in the morning with a little brown bag in his hand, and you know, like somebody would with lunch, but they all knew what was in it, and nobody knew what to do. And I don't really know at that point as as addicted as he was, and yes, addicted to alcohol at that point. I don't know if anybody could have saved him. And he had other things going on, too. Um, there was a good chance he'd have been involved in a in a big uh, trial and gone to jail for some illegal land deals. And we had somebody call Don up and plead with Don to talk to him. Please, a banker. He said, please. He may go to jail if he doesn't get out of it. Don't let him do this, Don. And Don, at that point, just told the guy, he said, well, you know, I'm not down there. And he doesn't listen to me anymore. In fact, Don and he had had a little uh, head-to-head at one point, And he said, he doesn't listen to me, so I don't have any control of it. I'll try, but I don't know what I can do. Well, I tell you what, Dottie, before I throw it to Barry for the next question, I do have a follow-up there. What was, if you remember, uh, what was a point in time, uh, if there was one, where Don uh, speaks to you and says, you know, uh, I'm starting to get a little concerned about Eddie, his drinking, or did he come home and, and tell you a story about Eddie's drinking? I don't want to get into specifics about what, what the story involved, but as far as a timeline, or was it kind of a sense of uh, maybe Don, even though you were his wife, maybe Don felt uncomfortable kind of telling tales about, you know, the boss? He didn't have to tell me any tales. It started in New York. I saw it personally. I was in the car with him. We'd pick him up at the airport, and he was, they were going to, like, the garden, and he'd make, he had a place to stop. He'd stop. He'd get a pint of... of uh, 
I don't know what he drank at the time, if it was rye or uh, bourbon, but he would get a pint. And by the time he had finished wrestling, that pint was gone. So I saw it from the 50s. It was progressive. Uh, I, you know, and when I was down in Tampa, he almost did me severe bodily harm. I was pregnant. And Don would do anything for Eddie at this time. And we went out on the boat on to fish with him on the Thundermug. That was his boat. And we went out fishing. And uh, Whitey Whitler, uh, who was uh, Don... Sloan, is that the name, Barry? Smasher Sloan. That was Smasher yeah. Sloan, yeah. Well, Whitey Whitler was was down at the docks. He had a business down there. And when he saw me coming out, I was about uh, five, four and a half, five months pregnant. And he said to Don, do not let her get on the boat because Eddie had already started drinking. We didn't know this when we got to the dock. But I did. I went out on the boat. And it just so happened we got into this huge fields of grouper and they're baiting my hook and throwing it over the side and I can't stick it in my stomach and I'm fighting with the with the rod between my legs and I'm pulling and I pull the fish up about the time I would they dump it in the boat so we had this huge catch of a couple of hundred grouper they were coming out of the bait wells and everything and when we got back we're going back by this time, Eddie was well soused, and I was standing next to Don, and he was driving the. Uh, Eddie was driving the boat, and Don was standing next to him to correct if he did anything on the way in, and he just started getting a little bit smart and rough, and he pushed me, and I almost went over the bait. Well, uh, the. Uh, engine box and Don grabbed me and he said that's it Eddie get out of here and he pushed him away and Don brought the boat into the dock and Whitey was there and he was livid but he got he got out of control uh I mean this went on all of his life it was it didn't just start so I didn't have to be told anything I was there I saw him I lived it and I lived it with unfortunately with his beautiful wife and his son uh and when you were telling that story too and I got to say you you really uh you really came off so wonderful uh, on that show, which I know that I told you privately, but in discussing such a, a, a sensitive subject, really handled with all the grace and class that I know that you have. Uh, the story about Eddie out in the field with the alcohol reminded me of the Mickey Mantle stories that I heard years ago where, you know, he was drinking like uh, – you know, like aftershave, anything that had alcohol because he was so wrapped up in the alcoholism. How was it when he was flying his plane? I, 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 I've heard stories that he was completely inebriated and he'd be flying the plane. What that had to scare the boys getting on the plane with him. Well, you know, and there were times Don would not, you know, get in a plane with him if he was was flying like that. He just never would have done it. And it's funny because he's the one who got Don interested in flying when he first started flying. Now, I will say this. At the time he started flying, I think he possibly took flying up to try to control the alcohol because he was not drinking. There were times that he was quite sober. 
But it was like that first drink, and then he'd go off on a tangent. So he got Don uh, flying with him and getting got him interested in it, as he did a couple of the other guys, too. But um, uh, I, I don't know how he didn't kill somebody. And Steve uh, Kern, I think he was afraid to say anything to hurt his uh, to hurt Eddie's feelings, just as in the thing Kevin Sullivan said, he was my boss, you know, uh, and the two of those guys just did such a wonderful job on that show. I, I was blown away. I, I was not prepared for how it was going to go. I just knew they were talking about the suicide. And that's all I, I wanted to do was to help them to, you know, with help Nicole with to get the story across because that is that's that whole family is a tragedy and it just shows that it was not just one person it was the whole family so uh you know i i don't know i the only reason i know the guys would have gone and playing with him was because he was their boss and he, they didn't know how to say no to him and of course Mike was his son so he would go too I don't know if uh, and I'm not going to talk out of school but I did hear a story about Steve being so concerned at one time he hid in the dressing room down I think it was in West Palm so he wouldn't have to go home with him he could ride home with one of the guys I mean that's you know it's sad that Eddie was like that and uh, one of the wrestlers, and I don't want to speak names, but he's a very dear friend of mine, and he comes and stays at the house with his wife, and Barry will probably pick up on that, but he's a great pilot, and he has nothing good to say about Eddie's flying and him flying when he was drinking. He just, he says, you know, I don't even want to talk about that SOB is how he talks about it. <laughs> So, uh, Dottie, let me ask you, I, I guess one of the questions that I always have to uh, ask myself, uh, and uh, I hope you'll be willing to uh, answer this. You know, you, you talk about the horrific stories of Eddie drinking uh, and the danger that he put not only other people, but yourself in. But you also mentioned that there were times when Eddie was, uh, you know, sober and he could do things that were very endearing. So as you look back on Eddie, uh, who's now been gone for, you know, over 35 years plus, are your memories of him positive or negative, a little of both? How do you remember Eddie? Uh, he w- Don, Don goes back to 1957 with Eddie the first time he was in Amarillo and he wrestled him when he was Rip Rogers. And he and Eddie were really, really good friends. And Don would do, like I said, anything for him. And Eddie saw the potential in Don. And, of course, he wasn't stupid. So he brought him down to uh, the Tampa Territory. Don's run in New York was just about out. And as you know, after a while, it's just, you know, you got to move on in the wrestling. And 
it, this was an attractive place to come, and he felt it would be a good place for us to come down to. And we did and had a wonderful time here. But then all of a sudden, Cowboy one day said, it's time for you to move on, Curtis. And so Don did, and we well, we went up to the Carolinas, uh, to Crockett's uh, territory for a while. We came back to uh, Tampa. We went out to Amarillo. Uh, Ed Black, uh, Stan Blackburn, excuse me. Stan Blackburn asked Don to come out and promote uh, out in um, uh, El Paso, and we went out there. And then Eddie called Don back and asked him to come back to uh, Florida. And so we did. And then from Florida, we came up here to Jacksonville, and that was because Eddie needed him to do the promotion up here. And uh, then uh, when Eddie, Eddie and like I said, Eddie and Don had a bit of a falling out, uh, and then Eddie started listening to some of the wrong people, and then one day Don was out, and so we had made our home here, and it was a little bit rough at first, but then the city picked up on Don and asked him to uh, be one of the city managers. And just like with the wrestling, he he went into it full barrel and did a great job. And uh, then uh, until politics took over one day and uh, uh, he was out. And, uh, you know, it, but end of story. But. Uh, as far as Eddie goes, uh, I I have good memories of Eddie, and then I have the and I I have to blame the alcohol for him doing Don wrong. And so you know, but he used Don a couple of times, and that really bothered me. Um, and he used him to give credibility to himself, but that's okay. It all worked out in the end. But I, I've just got you know hot and cold with Eddie, but as far as his family, uh, they were wonderful, and I loved his wife, and I loved Mike, and I absolutely adore Nicole, and she has, I I hadn't seen her for many years, and uh, I just, you know, have loved renewing our relationship again. Uh, as though, even though it's, you know, 200 and some odd miles apart, but she knows I'm here. So, um, but no, I, I, I can't say anything really bad about Eddie. I just feel sorry for him. He was, a, it was a waste of everything he worked for. He screwed up. Yeah. It's, it, I think if anything, and when Jeff and I did a review of that episode and, and Jeff, uh, asked me, you know, so what are your thoughts? It, to me, it was it was a sad episode. It was very poignant. Uh, it, one of the criticisms of Dark Side of the Ring is that they basically, and this would be other episodes, that there were times where they were exploiting uh, tragedies and things like that. I thought this was handled extremely well. You touched a little bit on the, the breakup of Eddie and Don, which I, I think would have been right around the end of 80, beginning of 81, somewhere in that time frame. And uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, me, right? 
Yeah, and it Don uh, Don wound up working with Louis Tillet and the great Malenko in Sun Sunbelt. Uh, yeah, and this was taking place in Jacksonville. What was Don's role exactly in that promotion? Uh, Louis came to Don and asked him to co-promote. And again, Louis realized, you know, that Don had established a name up here and credibility up here. And so he asked him to go and to co-promote with him. And they brought in some of the greatest guys at the time. Uh, one of them, one of the young Good wrestlers from Tampa was Alex Perez. Yep. And of course, Jimmy Valiant came in, Joe Scarper, who had been Don's partner. And, uh, he came in and the Malenkos and God bless those boys and their father. But, um, so they brought in a lot of talent, but in, well, which is what was happening with McMahon later on, they crush you. You, if you don't have the money to stay with it, they crush you. And Eddie tried to do that. That was one of his downfalls is when the other promoters tried to come into the territory down there, all Eddie could do was run against him, run against him. He didn't care where they are. They, they could have been, you know, uh, in the middle of, of, uh, Yeehaw Junction or something, and he was going to have a show right against him wherever he could, and he was going to promote against him, and he was going to try to kill him, and it and it just you know it, it killed him in some ways too. Yeah, so you know you had great Malenko. Malenko had a falling out with Eddie. It was uh, late nineteen seventy. Oh, that was stupid too. Yeah, which I was aware of that one, but that was late 1975, and and Don had his. When did Louis Tillet? Because there there seems to be the missing. Louis was still in 1979. He was still the Booker and kind of a valuable a valuable piece to their promotion. When did he have his falling out? I don't know what happened to their falling out. It could have been the drinking. It could have been that. Uh, uh, he was, Eddie was letting other people influence him. Uh, I know that, uh, Eddie was, I mean, uh, Louie wasn't real happy with Dusty. And, um, so I, I don't know. I really, I can't really speak on it. I can only surmise that either there was a falling out with egos down there, uh, or the alcohol. Or they just wanted to get rid of Louie and bring somebody else in. I don't know. Well, I do want to mention, <clears throat> Barry, when you're talking about uh, guys that wrestled in that promotion, and you mentioned Jimmy Valiant uh, and uh, and Bob Roop. Since it is uh, at the time we were recording this, the uh, anniversary of the date of his death, uh, Buddy Landell appeared in Don's promotion oh. also as Buddy Roop. Yes, I, I believe. What a great kid. Oh, oh my he, God. I, he, he lived with us. Oh, uh, really? He okay. Lived, he, he stayed here with us. Don, you know, <laughs> Don would, you know, would have done anything for any young wrestler and he was struggling. Uh, and, you know, they, they weren't making that much money. And sadly, he, the, you know, he would have been, I would, I think he would have been a, a champion at one point. Super, super guy, good looking kid. Um, but, uh, and he, like I say, he stayed with us. He, 
we had a in the office in Don's office we had a day bed and so we put him up in there we had no place else for him but he didn't have any place else to stay and so he did and I used to call him the hot dog kid that's all he wanted to eat was hot dogs so I went out and bought one of those hot dog machines that you stick the hot dog in it and you execute it I call it (laughs) (laughs) and he he just ate hot dogs all the time he loved them but uh and that's really funny, Barry, because when I asked what I was going to bring up, Buddy Lantel, I was expecting to ask, oh, Dottie, do you even remember Buddy? And there he lived with her. Now, you know how well, you, you have alluded to my, my age sometime. I've been around, and you want to call me anything you can. I know what's going to, you know, almost everybody that was in this territory from the time <laughs> we got here because I was involved not only, you know, at home, but I used to go down and help Don at the matches, and uh, uh, and I drive fellas to the airport when I needed to, and I drove him to the hospital when I needed him to, like Andre. All right, Barry, let's have a little AEW discussion. Oh. Uh, you know, last night was the big pay-per-view. I'll give you some thoughts on that in a second. So, you know, as I was watching uh, the other night, and they did the whole angle with MJF and Adam Cole uh, being made into a tag team, neither one wanted to be partners with the guys, uh, you know, very adamant. Uh, about their disdain for teaming with one another, obviously. But what it brought back to me, do you remember, it's a kind of very obscure reference, but there's nothing like stealing a gimmick from somebody else. And I think it was 86 or 87 in New Japan, one of the hottest feuds was Nobuhiko Takata versus Shiro Kosanaka. And it came time for the tournament, and the way that they worked it out was they made Kosanaka and Takata team with one another and the incredible thing was i remember Meltzer writing that they were one of the greatest tag teams he'd ever seen and i really wonder if you're gonna not see these guys you know yes there'll be the disagreements and all that kind of stuff but you know i wonder if these two guys aren't gonna knock it out of the park as a tag team what do you think i i would i don't are they capable yes 100 percent it really depends on what they're going to do with the booking. Is this going to be a short-term deal? And obviously, look, they're they're building up these guys so that they can have a rematch for the AEW World Title. Everybody gets that, right? That's you know, this is what they're doing here. And you just described the New Japan scenario. Uh, and Koshinaka, by the way, is a guy that nobody talks about, but he was. I, I don't think I ever, yeah, exactly. I don't think I ever saw him have a bad match. He wasn't the biggest guy. He wasn't the flashiest guy, but did he fucking deliver like Carl Malone every single time? He did. He was the fucking mailman. He was stuck with a horrible finisher. Remember his finisher was like the butt, butt where he he would throw the guy in the ropes and hit him with his ass. And that was his finishing move. I'm like, what the fuck? That's Uh, it. So I, I think it's, I mean, I, I like it. I, uh, I like that segment that they had on Dynamite on Wednesday night. I think it's a good idea. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's booking. It's booking 101. The question is, you can, you can start this angle. How do you continue and then finish this angle? And I would assume the finish is easily going to be, you know, a rematch for the title. But what happens? Who are the current champions? It's FTR, right? So yeah, they're not, uh, they're not going to win the titles. I guess they could though, right? I guess Jay White could come down and screw them and they could lose the title, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it it creates an interesting scenario. It does. Yes. So 
I thought of this question, and this was uh, before the pay-per-view last night at the time of this recording. In your opinion, who right now is the biggest star in AEW? All the way across the board, it's well, it's CM Punk. I, I love him, hate him, or indifferent, whatever. But I, I would say the buzz right now is right around CM Punk. I think Kenny Omega. And I think I think people had look. There is obviously this hatred towards Kenny Omega. You know, in some cases, maybe people think it's justified. In others, it's absolutely fucking ridiculous. Everything I have read about the match with Will Ospreay, first off, Will Ospreay to me is a wrestling god. This guy, I could watch he and Zack Sabre Jr. for the rest of my life, but Kenny Omega's got to get props to some degree. You may hate the backstage politics, wrestling a broom or a six-year-old girl, all that other shit. Everything I've read about this match last night with Will Ospreay, even people who don't like Omega, these are rational people that can actually point out the truth when it happens, are saying it may wait, be wait, one wait, of the we pe- have We have rational people? Yes, <laughs> apparently it ha- Apparently there are, there's a handful of people out there that don't like Kenny Omega that actually will recognize the fact that his match last night, I, I've heard several people say, was one of the great matches possibly of all time. That's how good it was. So <laughs> I, I, I will I will get to that match in a second because uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead into my thoughts on the uh, pay per view or the uh, the the show last night from Toronto. So <clears throat> my question I guess was if your answer is CM Punk, okay, and I mean it could have been one of uh, you know a number of guys. Sure. Who is going to be the biggest star in AEW a year from now? <sighs> I, uh, I Adam. Not yeah, Adam Cole. He, Adam Cole is really over big time with a certain segment of the viewing audience. MJF continues. I mean, I'd like to see more from MJF, but he is a reason to tune in. And there are certain guys with that. I don't know who the biggest star is going to be. And I, the truth is, I I think that's a very valid question because if Punk is your biggest star a year from now, something is clearly wrong. So here's the thing. I, you know, I guess the reason this question came up uh, in my mind is so at the pay-per-view last night, MJF wrestled, uh, wrestled uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi. OK. And uh, poor Tanahashi, because you can see his knees. Oh, yeah. He's like he's like Muda was in February, except he's younger than Muda. But his knees are just gone. And before we started recording, you said he he wrestles a lot like Matt Hardy does, uh, you know. Uh, and there is that that, uh, you know, except he's got better hair than Matt Hardy. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously his knees were shot. Maybe MJF was not put in a position where he uh, was wrestling somebody that was going to necessarily bring a great match out of him. I think MJF is one of those guys. He's super over as a personality. He's a great personality. Great heel. By the way, losing in our best promo tournament today, Barry. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, losing out to Nick Bockwinkle, the old. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, MJF, I think, is one of those guys. If he's put in with a guy that really knows how to work a match and control a match, MJF can be led through a great match. I don't know that if he's put in, and, and I understand he was put in a match with a guy that's a legend in Tanahashi. But I don't know because of his physical limitations if that led to MJF being put in a really great match on a card that was going to have a number of really great matches 
So I think by comparison, it makes the AEW champion look bad, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not, trust me, I'm not shitting on uh, MJF. I really like him. Sure. I just think that he needs to be put in with somebody that can really draw out of him all his best qualities. And I think because of Tanahashi's physical limitations, I think last night was one of those cases where you did not see the best part of MJF. It was a good match. I don't think it was a great match. You know, I don't know if there was political reasons. You know, there was the whole gimmick of Matt, uh, Max wants to be on first because he doesn't, you know, he thinks uh, New Japan is an India federation, which is actually kind of funny. But that's um, a great, that's a great gimmick, though. Yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> he actually came out wearing a jacket that says uh, that said Indie Fed or something like that. It was really funny. So anyway, so a year from now, you said if it's not CM Punk, if you were to pick somebody else, let's take MJF out of the equation. OK, OK. And take CM Punk out of the equation. Who's a guy that a year from, you know, we talked about Takeshka. Is that a guy a year from now that could be the face of the uh, of the company? What do you think? Or is it somebody else you got in mind? I think in ring work, I think Takeshita has everything needed, uh, and I, his development too. I, I think what we're going to see in a year, he's even going to be even better. It's the fact that he can't really do promos. And I kind of feel in, in this environment, today's environment with wrestling, it, it being a great wrestler isn't, isn't everything. The 70s, you can get away with that. I mean, well, I love Jack does, Briscoe. He does have Don Callis as his mouthpiece. Though. He does. He does. But are people going to gravitate? I guess as a heel that they, they most likely would. As a baby face, I don't know if they would. I, I, that's a tough question. I don't know if anybody's primed to be the top star. And I, I think this is when we were talking about the four pillars. And I think we both agreed that, you know, there's talent there, but none of these guys were ready. It, clearly, none of these guys were ready. And it, Jack Perry, spoiler alert, if you didn't see the pay-per-view turned heel last night, I think it's a good move. The guy, and I think we, we both even said that. That Jack Perry struck us as a heel, but I, I don't know. Is that enough to carry the company? I, I, that I don't see. Jack Perry just doesn't strike me as a guy that carries a company, whether as a no. baby face or a heel. You know, I, I mean, he's a guy that, uh, he's got definitely charisma. Yep. Uh, he's got ability in the ring, but he's, you know, it, it's the same thing with Adam Cole. Uh, can a guy that size when your opposition is Roman Reigns? Can a guy that size really be the face of your company. I think if you're going to have a guy that size be the face of your company, it's got to be somebody like Jushin friggin' Liger or something that somebody that right. is so out of the box, crazy good that he is a guy that can carry your company. And I just don't think Jack Perry is like that. I don't think Darby Allen is that. I think Darby Allen is different. I think Darby Allen has a higher ceiling uh, than Jack Perry. I just think Darby Allen's window is, is much uh, like uh narrower because the guy's going to end up killing himself at some point just because of the crazy shit he does. Uh, you know, then the, the, uh, the other guy is uh, Sammy Guevara. And again, Sammy Guevara probably, I think in a lot of ways is better than, than either Jack or Darby, but Sammy's even smaller than those guys. You know, he is special with some of the shit he does, but I don't know if he's that special to where he's a guy that you can, you know, put in there, and although he's obnoxious when he's working as a heel, I think they're they're trying to get him. You know, I, I think eventually he's going to turn on Jericho or Jericho is going to turn on him. They're sort of already putting the seeds out there for that. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I also saw something about the fact that uh, they have not still resolved the Omega Bucks and Page contract situation. And all their contracts are coming up uh, for uh, to be uh, renewed 
So out of those four guys, are you renewing all four if you're Tony Khan or maybe one, two, three, but not the fourth guy? You're like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would. I mean, so I would look at who's the most over, and I'm going to say I think Darby. And look, I wouldn't make Darby my world no, no, champion. I'm, I'm talking about the Bucks. Oh, Adam Page or Kenny Omega, one of those uh, those four guys. Uh, what do you think? I think Kenny. Guy? I I think Kenny Omega. I would go Kenny Omega, Page, and the Bucks. I I as as I was watching Collision, which is spoiler, but I watched it this morning. I, I, you know, there were, there were no bucks on this Saturday night show. I, I just, I think that there is, I, I don't know. There, there's nothing new coming out of the bucks. They can still have good matches, but that would be the, probably my opinion, uh, which not everybody's going to agree with that, that those, they would be the ones I would sign last. I think there's the most money available, uh, to be made with Kenny Omega. And I think Paige, I think if Adam Page is booked correctly, which he has not been a lot, you know, and he's not perfect by any means, but I think if you book him correctly, uh, you're getting something out of it. And I, I don't know about his world title run. I don't know. I, was it a complete fa- failure? Certainly in hindsight, it looks like it, but I, I thought he was getting over. Like I remember watching him come out and people cowboy shit. And I thought he was, I thought he was doing a good job. And you know, I, I, what did he have it? You know, three matches, four matches. He really didn't go too far with it. To me, I think Omega, and I, I think Omega most likely last night at that pay-per-view or whatever they call them these days, he probably proved that, right? You know, I think uh, I, I'm going to agree with you uh, as far as Omega. The problem is I don't know if you can get rid of one or two and keep the other two or get yep. rid of – you know, it's either kind of you're either all in, no Agreed. pun intended, or or you're all out. I think the Bucks. They're, they're like sort of, you know, if, if it was a territory, I think they need to move on. Right. Uh, I don't think there's any way they get pushed anywhere near that level in, uh, in WWE. If they were, I think, I think Vince would bring him in and essentially bury him just because that's the kind of spiteful prick that he is. I think Omega you need to keep because he's got several more years where he can be one of the stars of your company. I don't know about Adam Page. I don't know that I agree with you on that because I think. He was made their world champion. It failed, whether it was his fault or Tony Khan's booking or some other scenario that happened. But he sort of had his bite at the apple, and it didn't work out. Right. Uh, I know people do the cowboy shit, and, you know, oh, it's uh, really cool. And I just don't know that this guy has, uh, you know, here's a word that we've been using lately, the ceiling and the floor. I don't know that his ceiling is high enough to where he can be put in a position again to be the face of the company, you know, and I, you know, there's a lot of guys that are close to that, but like, you know, you think about it, if you're going to take the title off MJF, okay, like today, who's the guy that you're going to have that you're going to give the title to and give him, you know, a run of more than like a month. I wouldn't do that with Adam Page. I don't know if, you know, I wouldn't do that with Adam Cole. I think Adam Cole is a really, really good challenger. And, uh, he can, he's the guy that can bring out that stuff that I talked about from MJF, but I don't know that I want him being like the quote unquote face of the company for reasons that I stated earlier. So, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it's a question that I don't, you know, it's not like I asked the question and, oh yeah, I've got the solution. I've got the answers. You know, I just I definitely don't. So I tell you one thing that I did, Barry, since we, uh, we don't want to seem to be AEW centric here, a special use of the word centric. Oh, uh, I reached out to a friend of the show, Stephen Javorsky, <laughs> and I asked him, I said, you know, 
I know you watch literally every uh, every wrestling show that's on any sort of uh, television. Uh, you know, I think he probably has cable access uh, channel 213 and watches some indie out of Altoona, for God's sakes. I don't know. Uh, by the way, spend some more time with Mrs. Javorski, why don't you, instead of watching all these uh, low-level uh, wrestling shows. But I, I said, he posts every week, I'm watching Raw, I'm watching SmackDown. So I said, since Barry and I don't get a chance to watch it every week, I don't. Sometimes you say you tune in, sometimes you don't. I said, tell me three things that you think the WWE is doing that's good, and tell me some things that you are not a big fan of. So he said, ahem. <clears throat> First time we've ever quoted Javorski on this fine show, Barry. Wait, hold on. i got to sit down for this one. All yes, right. sit down. Yes. Uh, All right. Thank here you. Here on the penultimate episode of – Oh, look at that. Yeah, Everything circles one. back, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes. It's the circle of life. <laughs> All right. He says, three things I like. First, the Bloodline storyline has been great, and it has been long-term storytelling, something we never see anymore. Second, yes. nobody gets more heat than Dominic Mysterio. He can't even talk. The fans drown him out. Uh, their booze drown him out. By the way, I would just say, uh, check out a little thing called Don Callis next time you get a chance. Let's see. Uh, third, and this may be odd, but I like how that after the draft, there were several superstars that were free agents. So in other words, those talents could pop up on any show. I think it's sort of cool, and it opens up several different matchup possibilities. So starting with the good, what do you think of those observations? I like the first two. Uh, he is, I, it, so what I've seen of the WWE, and granted, I don't watch a whole lot. This bloodline storyline, Sami Zayn, all of it is, I think it's a highlight. It, it is everything I've seen about it. It's out of this world. It's fantastic. It's genius booking and it's long-term booking. It's 100% right about Dominic Mysterio. I think initially it started off as that go-away heat, like, fuck, please don't let this guy talk because we hate him. It's taken on a life that's a little bit bigger now than even that. So I like that. I I could care I, those two points. I agree with that third point. I could care less about guys that are quote unquote free agents where they can wrestle for either brand because eventually almost everybody does wrestle for either brand anyway. So it makes no difference to me. So like the first two, the third one. No, don't agree with that. Okay, so let me just ask you, if you were to guess. Do you think the whole storyline about the bloodline is a Vince McMahon creation, a Triple H creation, or a Paul E creation? Oh, excellent question. Eh, sometimes, I do, sometimes. I do believe Vince was still around uh, when this was created. I do think Paul Heyman had a huge hand in it. So I'm going to go, I'll say Vince, because I think he would have had the ultimate say. I think Paul Heyman's got a huge hand in it. And Triple H has nothing to do with it, or no? And he would probably also. I, I think. I think to some degree, yeah, he would have some. I think well, it's, it it's way, collective. If you, if you think all three had something to do with it, give me based on percentages. Like, is it fifty percent Vince, thirty percent Paulie, twenty uh, Triple H? How would you categorize it? On I would say the. I'd say the majority is going to Vince. I, you know, I, I don't know to what extent, but I would say the majority to Vince. I think he's got a team. I believe Paulie's probably got input on that. Triple H does, but I, with Vince, it's always, he's always going to have the final say, right? So it may be Paulie creatively, which really that's the answer you're looking for. I think Paulie creatively may have the biggest hand in it because Vince, and, and this is not, you know, look, my God, we've only knocked Vince a thousand times, but it, 
you know, you say what you want to say about Vince, but this storyline doesn't fit, in my opinion, the mold of what Vince did. You know, there, there weren't these storylines that Vince had a hand in that lasted a year, two or three years. So somehow this was presented to Vince and whether that was Triple H or Paul Heyman or maybe even somebody else, ultimately he'll have the final say. But, uh, yeah, I, I just don't see Vince on a day to day basis, you know, coming up with the blueprint and then going through the steps of this whole thing. That wouldn't make sense to me. Well, and, you know, one of the things he mentioned, the long-term storytelling, you know, one of the things that I, back in the day, uh, loved about, uh, like, a promotion like All Japan, the whole, like, just as an example, the Saruta Tenru feud. Uh, I mean, in the United States, that would have been a three-month program, you know? It's right. Three months, he turns on them, they have a blow-off match. That program literally went, like, over two years. The uh, program of Saruta and Tiger Mask, you know, that uh, became Misawa. That went over a couple of years. Then the Misawa Kawada program, then the Misawa Kobashi program and all that stuff. That was one of the brilliance of Giant Baba was the way that he could take a program and, you know, it, he could stretch it out, not stretch it out where you're like, oh, my God, let's get this program over with. Stretch it out where he kept it compelling for years and years. And if that is Vince, if that's Paul Lee or if that's Triple H, whoever it is. You have to give them credit for that because, you know, they uh, they definitely made that work and, you know, more power to them. So now let's take a look at the things that he was not a fan of. He starts off with, he said, I'm not a fan of the WWE bringing collegiate athletes to be ne- uh, their next superstars. Most have zero wrestling experience or probably never wanted to be a wrestler. While there are tons of people <laughs> okay. who do all over applying their, cra- their trade and would love to that chance. Okay. Part of the problem with that is there's no more Ohio Valley wrestling where they could ply their trade. Right. And then when they came up, you know, Batista and John Cena and those guys. So what do you think of that point? Well, it's supposed to be, uh, NXT is, was supposed to be the feeder, but sure, they, no, that's they don't have it. Yeah. But they don't, but even that now they, they've taken a lot of the main roster people and they put them back on. So I don't know. Now, d- when you read that, did you read that verbatim? Because Javorski, his comment about, uh, and I forget exactly what it was, but his comment about collegiate wrestlers not having wrestling experience, is that what I, I'm sure he was referring to professional wrestling. I, which he was, but I was, in my head I'm going, don't have wrestling experience, but they were in the Olympics. <laughs> You're right. So yeah. they don't. But look, it, for every guy, for every failure, and you know, I don't tell me, I don't know who the failure is here, but uh, there's a Kurt Angle as well. There's a guy who's a raging success, and look, if you've got, I think, I think Chad Gable, uh, for whatever reason, I think he's tiny, maybe the reason, but as a wrestler, Chad Gable has great matches. He's got a personality. To me, that guy's capable. He's just small, small in stature. I don't know, five seven, five eight. Can't be too big. So I get what he's saying, but I, I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. I, I think that can vary from individual to individual. Okay. Next one he said is, I am also so over Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens being paired together. Yes, everyone knows they're friends. Everyone knows they've had several matches prior to WWE. We get it. They don't have to constantly be attached at the hip. What say you? All right. They didn't have several matches. They probably had hundreds of matches. They were opponents. They were tag teams. But their careers have been intertwined for the last 15 or 20 years. 
The only thing I would say, and that, that sounds to me more like it's a personal opinion as opposed to, uh, they appear to be super over. I mean, Kevin Owens has, you know, he's gone back and forth between heel and babyface multiple times. Sami Zayn as well. He's gone back and forth, but these two guys who have been around for, I don't know, how long have they been in the Federation? A decade? At least they're as over now as they've ever been. They're, they're over. They're selling merch. They're, that's it. That's the name of the game. So I don't have an issue with it. I kind of think that they're fun together, but again, if he does it, more power to him. Okay. So his third, uh, thing that he's not happy with about the WWE is relates to something that you and I mentioned Uh-oh. regarding the Adam Cole MJF uh, situation. He says, uh, my third thing is a WWE staple. Let's put two superstars who are in a feud, et cetera, in a tag match. Of course, they won't work together. That drives me nuts. So let's hope that Tony Khan doesn't do that with Adam Cole and MJF. What say you, Bear? I mean, that that's what they're going to do. Why else would they put them together? The whole idea is that they don't work as a cohesive unit. They somehow get the win at the end, but they don't like each other and they won't work as a team. So I have no problem with that. To me, that's a, that's a recycle of a wrestling angle that you and I have seen 50 times probably. I have no problem with it, you know? All right. So, so in the end, just uh, as this is our penultimate episode, uh, one last time, should we just say fuck Javorski and his opinions, or or what do you think? I I gotta say, I think <laughs> his opinions are actually were were valid, uh, you know. And I I like I say, I definitely agreed with the first two, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm gonna miss Javorski. He, uh, I gotta say, we have, uh, you know, there are people that have supported us since day one, and Javorski is one of those. And whenever our episode drops, he always shares it. Never looks for anything in return, never looks for a pat on the back, nothing, just goes ahead and does it. So to me, that's a stand-up guy, though he's usually sitting jerking off, but to me, still a stand-up guy. Again, on that note, maybe spend some more time with Mrs. Javorski, and that problem will alleviate itself. <laughs> there you go. So now, Barry, let's talk match of the week. Oh. Our match of the week. Oh, Barry, we have not done a midnight versus rock and roll match in a hot tick. Today, we're going to a June 30th, 1985. Barry, it's almost the anniversary of this match. Good yes. Lord. 38 years ago in Oklahoma City, as we had uh, Ricky and Robert, the Rock and Roll Express, taking on Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, and their manager, the nefarious Jim Cornette. I got to tell you, Barry, before you tell us what you think of this match, holy shit, is Bobby Eaton great in this match. Incredible. So you kind of... <sighs> You planted the seed, put the bug in my ear, and that's all I saw in this match. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't able to really see much else because I really was focused. And you know what? You're right. And Bobby Eaton, you know, like Bobby Eaton was one of those guys, uh, and I think it was our old friend getting his weekly mention, Kevin Orcutt, that was pointing out to me guys, and I forget who he said, but he was, and it wasn't CM Punk, but pointing out guys who were great from the get go, right? And I always bring up Dick Slater, and in our conversation, I kept saying Dick Slater, Dick Slater, and that's because Dick Slater, a year out of the gate, was headlining in some of the smaller towns, and occasionally in the bigger towns too. He was a natural. Bobby Eaton was the same way. And, you know, I, I followed Bobby Eaton. I saw some of his early stuff when he was working for Nick Goulas. It started off as a baby face. And I think they paired him, obviously, with George Goulas, the Jet Set. He was paired with a guy named Arville Hutto, I believe was his name, a guy that I don't think really made it out of uh, the Goulas territory. But with that, Bobby was so good, 
even at that at young, you know, I want to say rookie stage, but he probably had a year or two underneath his belt, that essentially Nick Goulas had him turn heel and really made him the top heel in the company. So it, Bobby always had it, you know, and Bobby's drawback, as everybody knows, was he couldn't do a promo for his life. But being part of, in my opinion, one of the great tag teams of all time, the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette, he didn't need to do a promo. So to me, natural fit. And in watching this, what couldn't Bobby do? And look, Dennis Condry was a, you know, if we're looking, Dennis Condry was a really solid professional wrestler as well. Ricky Morton, I think one of the great baby faces also. But Bobby Eaton had it. And I think he had it literally right out of the gate. So I watched this match and I, I got to tell you, it was fantastic. And you and I have talked. I always preferred Condry over Lane. I always saw Lane as more of a fabulous one. He was prettier, you know, whatever he was. Condry to me was kind of a workhorse and the gel that he had with Eaton, I always thought was really incredible. So I, I thought this was a great match, but you know, as I look at it, I think. I think if we're looking at, as you said, it's almost fucking 40 years later. We're third, over 38 years ago, this match. I think history has been really kind to the Midnight Express, deservedly so, because their work holds up tremendously. I don't know, and I don't mean this in a bad way, if I can say the exact same about the Rock and Roll Express. And, and, it, with that, I, I like the Rock and Roll Express. There's some great memories there. But the way that, you know, the, it was a total fucking package between Bobby Eaton and his partner, whether Lane or Condry and Jim Cornette. He is the revelation in this match, though, Jeff. Well, so before I get to my uh, thoughts on this, let me just ask you, would you say the Midnight Express made the Rock and Roll Express or the Rock and Roll Express helped make the Midnight Express? I think in Crockett, I think it, I think if we're saying better team, it's the Midnights. But I do think the popularity of the Rock and Roll Express helped make them in in the Carolinas for Crockett. Well, so. but they they were working together in Mid South also. So oh no, no, they had been in Texas, Mid South. Yeah, no, no, I know. Oh no, yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. I just I think coming into Crockett. I think the rock and roll, we know it, what the rock and roll did in Crockett, uh, you know, it, it was incredible, absolutely incredible. They were massive, massive draws, and they were draws with really the people who are spending the money, which is the younger demographic. You know, the kids bring the parents, the parents spend the money. So to me, it was, uh, it was natural. They were a great team to be paired with them. Yeah, I, I just, I, I do think the rock and roll made them on the national level. Take out world class and mid south. I just think that natural pairing actually got them over. So I'm going to uh, access my copy of the Midnight Express and Jim Cordette uh, scrapbook. That's that a great is, book, by the way. Isn't oh, it? it's incredible. It's a real go-to source for information. So I looked up to see uh, what Jimmy had to say about this match, and interestingly enough, Barry. In the Did You Know category. Oh. The day before, on the 29th, the Midnight Express debuted on TBS uh, for Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, let's see. A convincing squash victory over. Uh, Barry, you remember that team of Larry Clark and Dale Williams? Boy, they were. <laughs> no. A, uh, a long introductory promo by Jim Cornette announced that the, uh, the greatest team in the world had come to the NWA. The Midnight Express were flown to Atlanta on Friday evening made wow. the TV shot on Saturday morning and still determined to do business the right way, flew back to Dallas 
to make the world-class spot show that night and a previously booked Mid-South double shot the next day. They worked Atlanta, then worked a double shot, starting off with the afternoon show here in Oklahoma City uh, in front of uh, where they received uh, the gate for that uh, day was 44,000. Then they went to Tulsa uh, for another Mid-South show where uh, the Fantastics went over the Midnight Express for a gate of 42,000. So they were part of two gates that uh, got $86,000. That's 1985 money, by the way. Do your uh, Google and find out how much Ooh. that would be worth today. Followed by three days off as uh, all three of the guys moved to Texas. Uh, I told you when I first saw this match that, again, four guys that are all great, great uh, tag team wrestlers. But to me, and, you know, Jimmy, of course, is always great at ringside. Uh, uh, on a bad day, running 102 fever, feeling like shit. I'm sure Jim Cornette is better than maybe one or two other guys in the history of the business. Sure. Uh, but the star of this show is Bobby Eaton. He's absolutely incredible. The, uh, you know, of course, because, uh, they're, uh, working their way out of town. Uh, they do the honors for the rock and roll, uh, who, by the way, I think we're also working their way out of town, if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, yeah, uh, Dennis and Bobby do the job, uh, to, uh, Ricky and Robert. Uh, really fun match. It's about 15 and a half minutes. Uh, you will enjoy it. The crowd, uh, in Oklahoma City at the Myriad is, uh, just losing their minds, uh, and their hatred for the Midnight Express and Jimmy. It's really fun to watch. It's, uh, and always, you know, let's be honest. These guys never had a stinker of a match. I think if these guys wrestled each other when they were all in their fifties, they'd still have a really entertaining match. So you're not, it's not like you're going to go, oh, this match sucks compared to the rest of them. But this is a really good match, entertaining stuff by all five guys. We will post a link to this match uh, in our Facebook group. with Bowdrin and Barry. And before I get to my next thing that I wanted to bring up, Barry, first of all, I, I realized I, I forgot to give my uh, thoughts on the, uh, the the show last night. First of all, let me just say, and I don't have uh, the link in front of me, so I don't know who it was. I tried to get the AEW show through uh, Fight TV, and it said, uh, it's not, uh, they're not allowing us to show it, uh, in the United States. I, I don't know what the deal is there. So I thought, oh, I'm screwed. I'm not going to be able to, uh, to be able to watch the show. And I was very disappointed because I really wanted to watch this show primarily for the, uh, Omega Osprey and the Danielson Okada matches. But, you know, there were other, uh, good, compelling storylines also. Well, lo and behold, someone in the group, and I'm sorry, I, I did not write your name down. That's on me, uh, suggested going through Bleacher Report and they said, you know, this is how I watch the show. Maybe that's something you might want to consider. Well, lo and behold, I went through Bleacher Report and special shout out to uh, the lovely sainted Mrs. Bowdrin. I'm sorry, the angelic Mrs. Bowdrin. She doesn't like to be called sainted anymore. Uh, and my daughter, Kelly, who uh, arrived back home after a week's vacation in Ohio, uh, came back home and they sat there and hooked me up. My daughter accesses the show, right? And then tells me, OK, I've got the show. Don't touch your television until this this program is over. Because I don't know what I did, but I got the I've got you access to the show now. Uh, you know, you, you bought it, everything's good. Don't mess with your television. I said okay. So uh, I'm watching the uh, the lead up. You know, about 40 minutes into it, my daughter has left. She's had gone home, and I said, you know, you know, it used to be when you'd buy a pay per view and you'd hit the the channel guide, it would be on channel like 999 or channel one. Something like that. I said, I wonder, you know, just for future reference, if I want to get another pick, because I'm thinking about the show in, uh, in England that's coming up in about six or seven weeks. 
and I definitely am going to want to get that too. I said, let me, let me check this. And I hit the channel guide and guess what happened, Barry? What happened? I completely lost the feed. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, fuck, what do I do now? And so I call Kim over and she's like, well, you know, how do you, you know, and she's asking me all perfectly intelligent questions. She's like, well, uh, you know, like, how did you access this before? I'm like, I don't know. Kelly did it. She's like, well, let me try to get Kelly. And of course, Kelly's phone uh, naturally goes right to voicemail. So she calls our son and she says, tell Kelly to pick up the phone because I have a question for, her. and uh, you know, the, the two ladies, God bless them. They are so much uh, smarter technologically speaking than I will ever be, uh, at my old ass age. Uh, and with like five minutes before the pay-per-view, we got the feedback and I was able to watch it. I do want to thank whoever it was out there, and you know who you are, who suggested uh, going through Bleacher Report and accessing it through that. Uh, this was a uh, pay-per-view that was $49, and I can honestly say that when the show was over, I said, yes, yes, that was worth it. And, you know, yeah, Barry, you and I both watched pay-per-views. We were like, what the fuck was I spending that kind of money on that show? Absolutely, yeah. And this was absolutely worth it, uh, if no other reason than the Omega Osprey match, which was just next level, off the charts, friggin' great. I think it was uh, Jason Ward said, uh, you know, whatever Uncle Dave gives this match in the next Observer uh, issue uh, does not do this match justice enough. And then I, I very snarkily commented, well, I just hope people aren't too upset about the, uh, the amount of dives uh, in the match. Because uh, my old friend Craig Halleck earlier in the uh, evening had said, does every match have to have a dive uh, of some type, uh, you know, on an AEW show? And, you know, while he has a point, uh, my question would be, uh, Barry, let me ask you, when's the last time you watched a pay-per-view or a uh, AEW collision or uh, AEW Dynamite or Rampage or any show, any WWE show that did not involve someone giving somebody else the Ric Flair chops and the crowd going woo? <laughs> I don't think it's ever. I don't it's think it's every show ever. Yes. Happened, you know, and it's really funny. People are shitting on the fact that they're doing dives in this match. But every time. In a match, somebody does the Ric Flair chop in the corner, and the crowd goes, woo! You know, it's like, come on, people. Like, if you're going to criticize the dives, and if you want to, that's completely completely fine. If you have a problem with the amount of dives they do on the show, maybe that's a very compelling argument. But if you're going to do that, I want you to also notice the amount of times they do chops on that damn show and the WWE show. And it's like, come on, people. Rick's like, what, 73, 74, 75 years old now? Let's fucking put the rest, the whole Ric Flair chop thing, which, by the way, was originally a Wahoo McDaniel chop, but I digress. So it was. Yes. Tell me when you're telling lies, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen Punk. You got Uh, it. Next thing I want to bring up and mention, uh, Andrew Betts uh, on the show or on the the Facebook group asked a question about the two live crew trial. Uh, uh, Barry, I know you were a big fan of Two Live Crew and uh, and Luke Campbell. <laughs> oh yeah, I I had all the stuff. And you know what? We should say congratulations to Andrew who recently got engaged. What up with that, Andrew? Congrats, my man. So he asked a question about the Two Live Crew trial, and it brought to my I I did not sit in on that trial. Uh, you know, uh, I definitely remember the crowds around the uh, the courtroom because, as a matter of fact, that trial took place. Uh, in the old wing of the now uh, closed up uh, old Broward County Courthouse, which, by the way, uh, it's funny. That courthouse has been closed for, I want to say, going on five years now. And they still wow. haven't torn the fucking thing down. I mean, come on, people. What are you waiting for, Broward County? Uh, but anyway, it took place in courtroom 354. 
Ray Rhodes, I was assigned to courtroom 353. That's right. Right next door that was my courtroom. So the thing I remember about the trial was the judge presiding over the case. I think I maybe mentioned her once or twice on here was a woman named June Loran Johnson, who was such a absolute sweetheart of a woman uh, and just as quirky as quirky could be. But the thing that everyone remembered about June Loran Johnson uh, was June Loran Johnson was <clears throat> Barry. See if you know what this means. She was extremely zoftic. Yeah, she was. Uh, she had a rack on her. She know. was a BBW in a sense. Uh, oh, you know, she was a BBW upstairs. I don't know. Just upstairs. Means. Okay. Yeah, I, well, I isn't Zoftig? I think isn't Zoftig the complete package? Uh, I thought it was just she had big boobs. And like, when I say, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't mean she was a C or a D cup. I mean she was up there on the Fs and the Gs. Nice. She had a humongous rack, and to the point where one of the stories that I remember about June Loran, because I was very good friends with her clerk, and June Loran literally would come into court, and she would lift up her bra and plop the girls right there on the bench. Say what? And hold the court. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, her boobs rested on the bench as she held court. The other story that uh, I remember wow. her, her clerk uh, telling me was that uh, they were doing court one day, and I think they were doing an arraignment docket, which is, of course, that's the first time you get to come in and enter a plea in front of the judge, guilty, not guilty, whatever. And so I guess the session had been going on a little bit long. So uh, Judge Johnson has someone standing at the podium explaining his side to the particular story, whatever it was. And her clerk said she looked at it and the, the judge was wearing a, a, a skirt that day, I guess. And uh, so she says she looks over at the judge, the judge, and this is not something – in theory, that you would think that the entire crowd uh, would uh, be able to see. But if you were sitting right next to her or if you were a court reporter sitting next to her, you would have seen it. Or maybe even one of the attorneys. As she's listening to the person give their explanation, she lifts the hemline of her skirt up, does the little FDS, Barry. What? Right there in fucking open court. Wow. I will never as long as I'm on this earth, forget that story. And I'm like, what she told when their clerk told me, I was like, say what? And she goes, absolutely. Lifted the skirt up, kept right on going as if nothing had happened. And wow, she is no longer with us anymore. June Loran, she died several years ago, oh. but she was a character uh, in a courthouse that uh, unfortunately, based on everything I've heard, does not have a lot of characters in it more in it. She was a, she was a good judge, fair judge. Uh, and, Every time I got to go in and work as her clerk or help out uh, in the capacity of what they called a writer, where you were the person that uh, passed out the dispositions to different, uh, you know, lawyers or, or defendants when they came up or notices, it was always fun. And when I when I came in there, she always greeted me with, "Hey Jeff, how you doing?" And uh, we always had a good time. Like if somebody did something kind of uh, silly or stupid, she would kind of lean back and look over at me and uh, and roll her eyes, and you know, we would both kind of start laughing. And so she definitely was a judge that has a sense of humor uh, about the court system, and she's really missed by uh, all those that knew her. So, yeah, the two live crew trial, Barry. Uh, next question that comes up, Barry. Barry, I heard this on another podcast. I wanted to get your thoughts. Barry Rose, out of the four major sports, NHL, NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball, okay, you're talking about sports. Uh, football has 17 games. Basketball, hockey, both have 82 games. And the NBA has 162 games. 
Which one of those four sports, Barry Rose, would you say is the most physically taxing on the particular athletes that, that, uh, perform in those sports? What say you? Ooh, I like it. So let's, why don't we break it down a little bit, right? Football. Break it, break it down. Football, the most contact. Uh, these guys are just pounding the shit out of each other and, but they're only playing once a week and then there's bye weeks, et cetera. And this, this season only lasts a few months. Baseball, I mean, how many games are they playing? It's 180 games or something? 162. 162. I mean, that's, that's absolutely insane. The NBA, a lot of games played. And let's be honest, there's not a lot of downtime unless you're sitting on the bench. If you're on the court, you're essentially running miles out there. So your cardio has got to be through the roof. But hockey, Jeff, hockey, a lot of games, physical contact takes a lot. I'm going to go with hockey. I got to be honest. That was my, uh, my choice too, just oh, because of the uh, amount of you know, physical banging that's going on into the boards. You know, uh, my Florida Panthers, uh, went into the playoffs and, uh, I think they were, I read something where they were at or just over a hundred games. And you think about the physical toll. Uh, and it's really funny because hockey, I don't know about the other sports. They never tell you what the injury is. If a guy gets injured, it's upper body injury, lower body injury, you know, something along those lines. And some of the open ice checks that you see. When guys like literally just get knocked the fuck out, uh, you're right. It's not like any one of these is like, oh, well, you can be a complete wuss and still do these games. You're right. You know, every sport has their own certain amount of physically taxing nature to it. Uh, of course, uh, calling to mind Gordon Soley, you know, the average football player, uh, is exerts 14 minutes of injury, uh, whereas, uh, Jack Briscoe wrestles the 60 minute draw every night, you know, that kind right. of thing. But, I will go hockey, I will go football, I will go baseball, and then basketball. What say you? Hockey, football, baseball, basketball. I The only thing I would say about basketball is, again, the cardio has got to be off no, the charts, right? I'm not, I'm not shitting on basketball. Yeah, no, no, you're not. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying I, compared to the other three sports. Mm, I, 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 I don't know. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to baseball – or the NBA at the very bottom. You sure. went, yeah, yeah, that's, I would, we're both in agreement. It's, it's hockey and football up top. I, I would guess maybe the NBA, but I, I don't know. I, maybe, I don't know. I think I'm going to go baseball down at the very, very bottom. Actually. So the only reason, uh, you know, that, uh, that, you know, you said football, well, they only play 17 games, but you know, uh, while that is true, back in the day, they were playing 14 games, but it was one of those things where, you know, once, uh, January or early February hit, you essentially took five or six months off. Right. You, know, you worked, uh, at a car dealership or something like that to make some extra money because the owners weren't paying you anything. But now if you think about it, you know, football is like, you know, you maybe get a couple of weeks off after the season and then you're physically getting yourself ready for the next season. And sure. You know, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast, a hockey podcast the other day <clears throat> and they were interviewing one of the, uh, the Panthers players. And he was talking about that, uh, yeah, the season was over. I'm going to maybe take a week or two to uh, go on vacation with my wife and kids. And then basically I got to come home and start prepping for the season, you know, because especially when you go longer into the playoffs, you, uh, you know, you have less downtime because, you know, my Panthers are going to start the season with two of their defensemen on the injured list. And the fortunate thing is that my Panthers, uh, did go that far into the playoffs, uh, 
And uh, you know who has a lot of time to recover, though, is uh, John Pantalone's Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> I just had John a quick shot there. Yeah, and, and by the way, uh, Mitch Dayberry, uh, I don't know if you heard the promo that uh, Christian cut on uh, the uh, recent uh, recent episode of Collision where he had the uh, the crowd in Toronto ready to turn him as the hometown boy, and then he cracked on the Toronto Maple Leafs and how they're always losing in the playoffs, and it was absolutely brilliant. Christian, a super underrated uh, promo guy, even though he did lose, I think he got Bobby Heenan in our, our promo tournament, and uh, but he's a really good promo guy, Bear. He's fantastic, too. When I heard that, and I know exactly the promo you're talking about, and some of the stuff he was doing with Jungle Boy going back two or three months ago, I just thought was incredible. And it was he was skirting that, is he going too far? Is he crossing the line? Without actually crossing the line. And yeah, to talk, me that's, talking about his deceased father. Yeah, which at times, maybe he really was crossing the line yeah, as right. well. But he certainly had gotten the uh, the okay from Jungle Boy Jack Perry. And uh, I just think Christian has had this kind of career resurgence with his promo work. And I don't recall him ever having great promos in the Federation. So this has all been kind of a surprise. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Barry, uh, I think you noticed uh, that today, speaking of great promo guys, you know, MJF uh, in our tournament, uh, was taking, uh, who the heck was he, uh, facing in the first round? Nick Bockwinkle, and he was losing in the first round. So, little spoiler ahead of, uh, tomorrow's tournament, uh, edition, Barry. So this is a, a tease for you because I wanted to make sure that we could do this ahead of tomorrow. And this, by the time this episode drops, uh, the tournament will already have been announced. So Barry, who would you take in this matchup that's coming out tomorrow? The captain, Louis Albano. Or Ole Anderson. Ooh, I would take Ole. Uh, the captain was very entertaining, but essentially the captain was a. It was comical. Uh, I don't think he. I never saw him cut a serious promo. It was always like, you know, Doctor Sigmund Ziff <laughs> slash uh, gynecologist Tony Onabla. Tony Onabla. <laughs> You know, unbred virgins, goat milk, all that shit. So, <laughs> yeah, he, he to me was comical. He was having fun with it. But Ole was he was one of those guys. He was like the assassin there. The Scared the hell out of you. Yes, there was a real sinister aspect there to Ole. So I would clearly go with him. All right, Barry, I think it's about time now that we uh, kind of turn the corner head for home. Been a fun episode. Uh, wow, B- Barry, how great was it? to uh, be able to play just a portion, part one of our uh, interview with uh, Dottie Curtis. Uh, you know, I was talking with uh, Brian last the other night, and Brian even said that Dottie uh, is, has got to be considered the preeminent uh, historian of CWF because she was there before guys like Jerry Briscoe and Steve Kern even, Barry. Yeah, well, Brian's just taking a shot at me when he, and you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we well, could say it. Well, really? I mean, yeah. yeah exactly. But, uh, but especially Brian. I know that's You're not a, a historian. Shot, You're an archivist. I'm an archivist. <laughs> but with that, uh, he might also be correct because look, Dottie, and I don't want to give away her age, Jeff. Oh, no, she'll kick know, your ass. And she could kick my ass. So I definitely wouldn't mess with her, but her knowledge. And the thing is, she's got this impeccable recall as well. That's the other yes, aspect. Really amazing. Yeah. She can go back 60 years into the sixties and, you know, come forth with these minute details of everything. So I've been encouraging her. She's been working on a book for years. She had some health issues. I'd buy it. 
I, I would buy it. I would read it, uh, and I would want to get a copy autographed. But she is a gem, and we were we're so fortunate to have her join us today. Yes, and we will uh, be releasing part two, uh, maybe on episode three hundred, maybe Patreon. I don't know. It depends on if you're good, quite frankly, as the listener. So. On that note, uh, I will remind everyone that we are production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Our producer, Sweet Lou, thank you so much, uh, Lewis, for all your efforts. Uh, Barry, this is the penultimate episode of this is Breaking. It. Yeah, we got one more to go, my man. And then, you know, I don't know if we're doing Grand Funk Railroad. I'm getting closer to my home. Uh, you know, well, what the hell, Barry? Maybe I'll do a little sailing by Christopher Cross because I know you're a big fan, Barry. Oh, yeah. Huge fan of Christopher Cross. <laughs> We've got all his albums, right? So on that note, for Luke Kippelman, for my co-host, Barry Rose, I will remind you that I am Jeff Bowden. Sometimes they call me the booker. I did not, however, I did not, however, forget before the end of the show, as I like to do each and every week, even though I wish I didn't have to do it each and every week. I would like to say that I'm thinking about my boy, Gunny, and I love him every single day. And one of the things I'll miss about the regular episodes is being able to tell my boy, Gunny, that I'm still thinking about you, buddy, and I still love you. Until next week, for the grand finale, Lou, take this ship into port.